I don't believe that you necessarily need to build your own storefront. You know, there could definitely be the arguments for it. But, you know, to your point, it could be a marketing line item and something that's really, really intelligent for you, depending on your product and and how you fit and where you sit in the value chain. And, you know, are you a high-end product? Where does that look like? But also just getting into you know, the Costco's and Walmart's and, you know, targets of the world, if your brand fits that, you know, that has a flow on effect too, and something that can be really, really valuable. Again, it's a different strategy, and it's a totally different reality. Welcome to Product Market Fit, a podcast for early stage founders all about startups, technology, and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and my guest today is Yoni Kuzminski, co-founder of MultiplyMe, Escala, and Southco. Today's conversation focuses on e-commerce and D2C trends, as well as offshoring and getting the most from your teams. Yoni has a ton of experience in these areas and shares very useful tips on these topics. Be sure to tune in next week with the amazing Laurel Taylor from Candidly. Hey, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that bookmark or subscribe button so you get notified whenever we release new episodes. And if you've got another 15 seconds, please leave a five-star review of the show. I really appreciate you joining me on this learning adventure. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Yoni Kuzminski. Hello, Yoni. Welcome to the show. So happy to have you on today. Well, sure. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So you've got a lot going on, got several companies, like a mini Elon Musk. Why don't you introduce yourself, tell the audience what you do and and how you got to where you're at. Mini Elon Musk might be the biggest exaggeration uh, in history, but uh, I'll take it as probably the biggest compliment at the same time. Uh, So while uh, aspirations might be Elon-esque, my humble reality is that uh, I've co-founded and running three companies currently. Multiply Me is a executive search uh, recruitment function into the Philippines. Uh, We hire for lots of companies and help them staff uh, high-value, low-cost talent. I've got a process improvement consultancy with about 40 management consultants, also out of the Philippines, where we assess businesses, build process, and help systemize them for scale based on people, process, and technology, and everything from SOPs to training videos, process mapping, and design, organ accountability charts. And the last is a joint venture with an investment bank and a fintech where we inject capital into businesses, namely e-commerce businesses, and we help grow them to exit over a uh, two-year horizon. So that is uh, what I'm up to. Super cool. The topics of offshoring and process improvement, definitely want to dive into that in a little bit, but I want to start off with a focus on e-commerce. You have a deep experience there in your past life as well as your current companies. We've seen a real boom and bust cycle as it relates to kind of venture in e-commerce. So to start us off, I guess, do you think that e-com and D2C are venture-backable businesses? And if not, why did we see this kind of rush into it and now suddenly collapse? Great question. So the short answer is yes, I do see it as venture-backable. The reason why to sort of allude to or respond to your boom and bust scenario, and for those of you listening who aren't familiar, about $16 billion of venture capital was injected into the e-commerce space from 2020 until about 2023. So it was a three-year heavy investment, heavy on the debt side, heavy on the venture side. And you know a lot of these companies are now failing. I think why they failed was that 
people were investing in commoditized products, thinking that they saw gaps in the market and ultimately realizing that it's not as easy as they had deemed to run these businesses and aggregate them. That was also compounded by margin compressions with the freight and logistics problems that we saw through COVID, not to mention a lot of them were focused on the Amazon ecosystem. And we also saw compression on everything from media to just general fees. Amazon takes far more today. It's a lot more competitive and there's a lot more Chinese players coming to the market and it is very hard to compete. So the short of it or the long of it rather here is that it's definitely venture backable, but you can't be investing in commoditized products that anyone else can just pop up and compete with. You really have to invest in building brand. You really have to understand who your target or ideal client profile is when it comes to actually selling the brand. You know, just to give you some examples, if you are with intent and you're in the food category and you know that you can sell to kind bars, for example, or you know that whatever you're building towards, understand that who your target is and start with the end in mind. And I would say that definitely venture backable, but you know, you're not backing these one, two, three million dollar revenue businesses, trying to grow them to five, six, seven million in revenue and then selling them. I think those days are gone. Yeah, I think they are. I saw an article from Crunchbase last month that venture funding into D2C and e-commerce is down 97% from its peak in 2021. So uh, definitely a different landscape. What are the alternative funding sources? There's uh, a lot of different options and something that we, we've talked about um, multiple times on the show that venture funding is very good for specific circumstances and for specific types of businesses, a win-win for uh, for all sides, right? It, it creates opportunities where high-risk capital is needed, but it's not a great source of funding for uh, other types of businesses. And I think that uh, D2C probably falls into that category. Allbirds is uh, an unfortunate example that kind of comes to mind of you know, road close to the sun and, and came crashing down. There haven't been very many. In fact, there's, I can only think of maybe a handful of true D2C venture outcomes. So what other sources should founders in that space be looking at and considering? There are tons of non-dilutive capital providers. We partner with Sellers5, but you've also got Viably, you've got uh, 8Fig, you've got ClearBank, ClearCo. There's there's a whole lot of these non-dilutive capital lenders. I'd say the challenge with that is it eats into your profits uh, quite significantly. Obviously, friends and family money and people who believe in the brand are going to be obviously great ambassadors. The challenge with e-commerce is as the business grows, so too does the demand for inventory and media spend and all of these aspects. So it just inherently is a business that requires capital to grow to meaningful measures, unless you can find an outsized opportunity where the ROI or the profitability of that specific brand is is significant. And it's also one of those things that stand the test of time. And just for the listeners as well, when we talk about venture-backed, VCs are looking for an outsized return on their investment. And when, you know, these situations arise and it was so aggressively looked at, you know, they were talking about it as a new asset class for a period of time as FBA brands. And now, you know, that's an incredible stat. It's down 96 or 97% what you just stated. I think it was over-indexed before. I believe that we'll head into a better reality where, you know, real founders who are building real businesses, you know, are rewarded as such. But yeah, fascinating to hear that that stat. Yeah, but... You partner with these businesses, help them grow, help them operationalize and scale up in order to potentially exit. What are the exit opportunities for these types of brands that, that get to, well, 
what level do they need to get to in order to exit? Kind of like what's the the minimum that it's uh, a sellable business? And then what kind of multiples are, are we seeing in the marketplace right now for these types of businesses? Yeah, so the general rule of thumb is is the bigger the business and the more profitable, the, the larger the multiple and the larger the liquidity event. And so I think what we've seen over the last few years is that you used to be able to grow a business to, you know, in, in 2020, 21, you could grow it to two, three, four hundred thousand dollars and see some stupid multiples like five, six, seven X because all these aggregators who were trying to buy up all the best brands or the perceived best brands were, you know, it was a real betting war on what these brands look like. Today, those, you know, a lot of those are not buying anymore. And the ones that are investing in larger, more mature brands that have really a product runway and a roadmap and, and clarity on the direction. So I would say today, in let's just take the South Coal example, which is the the JV we have. So we've got its venture debt, right? So it's it's a $50 million facility where we're investing in these businesses and we're growing them to exit. But for us, the way we're looking at it is if today being really generous, you know, the sort of starting point of our investment mandate would be about four million in revenue and running at about twenty percent net profit margins as a as a business. Today you might be lucky and attract a two point five X on that business at four million. And I think that would still be relatively generous right now. What we would look to do is actually grow it over a two year horizon and see that hit from four to somewhere between ten and fifteen and look to hit multiples of five to six. And so as you start to hit, you know, I'd say the magic number used to be 5 million in revenue a couple of years ago, where you'd start to see some really significant multiples. Now that number is looking more like 10 million. And again, the larger you get, the larger the multiple can be, because, you know, just sort of really breaking it down for the listeners, you know, you got sort of venture debt at, at the bottom, then venture capital, then you go to private equity and strategics. And when private equity and strategics look at it as you get larger, then they have a lot more money to play with. Typically, it's not about this short term, you know, pump and dump and, you know, create an outsized win. It's let's play the long game here. So if they have a portfolio of brands and the brand that they look to acquire actually is complicit to how they can cross sell and upsell and build more enterprise value into their business, then all of a sudden it's a different game. So in order to actually attract those big multiples and to be uh, interesting for these PEs and strategics, you have to get it to a meaningful number. And so I think the big learning or the interesting thing in the landscape today is that you know, it would be um, ridiculous for me to say it's easy to get to $5 million in revenue. That's not the case, but it's a very different type of individual or team to take it from zero to five than it is from five to 10 and then 10 to 25. And so I think that's really where we sit today is that you really have to be intentional about the, the partners and the vision and the direction and the capital and the product roadmap and the brand building perspective. And I would even say in the irony, we had a chat uh, last week where I was saying I had come from digital marketing and pure e-commerce, stumbled upon Amazon, saw the returns on Amazon businesses and said, forget about D2C, Amazon's where it's at. And now we're shifting back, I believe, to where you really have to move back to having omni-channel presence. You have to really build a relationship with customers and look at that long-term value proposition and, and invest to get the re return as the brand expands and you have more products to cross-sell. Just for clarity's sake, the multiples that you were referencing, those are uh, revenue multiples or EBITDA multiples? EBITDA multiples. Got it.
You mentioned roll-ups. I'm curious your perspective on that business. Open Store from Keith Raboy comes to mind. Funny story, you know, back in 2022, there was a company or a, a group that was doing these and they, they approached me offering a Tesla for every company I sent their way that would be a, a good fit for their uh, portfolio. So there definitely was a, a heyday where money was being thrown at these FBA businesses and D2C brands. Obviously, it's not like that anymore, but there are a few big players that still exist. Where do you see their future going? Yeah, it's funny that you pull up that example. They got into trouble for doing that at the Prosper Show because they weren't actually paying for a booth. I can't remember if it was actually Heyday or Boosted or I can't remember which aggregator it was that was doing it. The funniest part about that is that that, I don't know, thirty, forty, $50,000 car is far less than what they would actually pay you in a referral fee. So it was a really smart marketing play on their part. But Oh no, that 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 was on top of the referral fee. That was right. an added bonus. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Okay. I didn't I didn't realize that was the case. Okay. Still great marketing. Really. It was uh, you know, it stood out. Everyone was talking about it. So I think what is happening or what will continue to happen was always going to happen. You weren't going to have a hundred percent of these aggregators succeed. You're always going to see, you know, the top 10 to 20% rise to the top and outperform the rest. And so you're already seeing tremendous amount of consolidation, you know, a couple of really big name brands merged just recently. You had um, Elevate Brands and SellerX out of Germany come together and, you know, they had relatively large portfolios and combining them now, you know, they become one of the biggest players all of a sudden. We saw Thrasio look to file for bankruptcy a couple of weeks ago now. So it's happening. It's all coming together. And for those who, ha- who listening who haven't heard of Thrasio, they raised $3.4 billion acquired 260 odd profitable companies and are now filing for bankruptcy. So the point in that is that it's not that you can't do it. It's that like anything in life, uh, slow and steady wins the race and really thinking through what it looks like. So I think there will be brands that succeed in achieving what they want to achieve. So if they have been acquiring into specific niche verticals, rolling them up and then selling to a PE or a strategic or whatever that looks like, I think that's a chance. I don't know what uh, listing on the stock exchange uh, really looks like. I would say uh, Solo Stove managed to achieve it. They weren't a roll up. They literally. Uh, they literally just went and did it themselves, got acquired, and then went through a second bite and 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 listed. And you know that's a really amazing story for those uh, listening in to, to to take note of. But I think I think it'll continue to play out. I mean, from the lens that I sit in, there are still aggregators buying. It is far far fewer than what it was uh, historically. You know, I would say it's probably down ninety to ninety five percent on the acquisition side from from the aggregators. You just don't really hear it that much. And what's more is you don't see a whole lot of them even sponsoring events anymore. So it's sort of a very good indicator of what it looks like. But there will be some that succeed, I, I believe. Sure. Yeah. Let's um, kind of zoom in a little bit We from the 30,000 foot view down to the ground level of e-com strategies and digital marketing landscape today, uh, something you're very familiar with. What trends are you seeing? How has AI affected everything. You know, 2023 was the year of AI. Um, so many great new tools and products and opportunities out there for marketers and brands. What are you seeing today in terms of how it affects digital marketing strategies? What are your predictions going into 2024? Some great questions in there. So I'm going to try and break them down here. So firstly, when it comes to what do I see in terms of trends right now or, or the things that are happening, it's becoming more and more challenging to succeed on Amazon, particularly in the US. 
And from that specific ecosystem, I'm seeing uh, a trend to diversification. So people are exploring other channels, other platforms, TikTok shop, things like that. I'm seeing a lot more chatter around those particular opportunities, a lot around influencer marketing and, and how to actually generate uh, you know, a great yield and return on, on brands and finding other ways outside of traditional media buying to actually drive that traffic and make it profitable. I would say at a sort of slightly zoomed out level beyond that when it comes to AI, I think that it's really going to change the landscape from a content perspective. So being able to do a lot more with less. So from an SEO perspective, I think it's going to have tremendous implications. I mean, I can share from my personal lens, you know, we're, we're now able to produce piece of content every single day now, um, you know, 30, you know, that's 365 pieces of content a year, as opposed to historically, it would have been, you know, a handful a month. So that's going to have implications when it comes to SEO value. But, you know, that, that also transitions to cutting video content and finding ways in which you can really start to explore. I'd say one of the converse or, or rather interesting implications as well is that what I would say used to be one of the biggest gaps from the seller in China who didn't have control of the English language, didn't have the ability to really market products, they're now able to you know, float it in in Mandarin, translate to English, throw it into chat GPT, and then have these much more eloquent and, you know, uh, ways to market. So I think it's also going to make it more challenging in ways as well. And, you know, we'll, we'll continue to push up. So I think that the whole China versus the rest of the world is, and it's just going to be a really interesting thing because, you know, the reality is no one outside of China can produce at the cost of China, even from a freight supply chain logistics perspective. They just have their own ways of doing things and they can just do things far, far cheaper. So coming back to it, the way we win in terms of the West and in the US is, is, is going to have to be on building brand and really understanding the ICP of the buyer and getting to know them better than people that are less attuned to the specific brand. But, you know, I'm kind of saying all of this to say that they created TikTok and it's taken over the entire US population. So I think that, you know, it's a very interesting world that we step into in 2024. Yeah. I have uh, mixed <laughs> mixed feelings about TikTok and what it's doing here in the US in the US and, and what it's doing to the population. Let's not go there. Let's talk about you mentioned TikTok shop and Instagram shop. That's something that, you know, Meta's tried multiple times to crack that, right? On platform shopping in Facebook. They weren't able to succeed at multiple attempts. It seems to now be taking off a little bit. Is that a trend that you're seeing? Why do you think that now is the time that uh, these kind of native shopping experiences in social media apps is taking off? So my, my personal belief is that it's just becoming so challenging to build a profitable business on the channels that were, uh, I would say, more accessible or, or easier to manage. And those are the marketplaces that exist. So if everything from eBay to Amazon to Etsy to you name it, these marketplaces build an infrastructure that enable people who aren't good at a lot of these factors to sort of gamify or create a shortcut. And so this is just the next iteration. And like any new platform or something that is trying to overtake an existing platform, media is going to be cheaper, visibility is going to be higher. You know, it's, it's the launch of any new thing. It's always the case. It's how do you drive adoption? And if you can say, I'm selling more, 
it's more profitable. This is my now focal point. Then I believe that's why we're seeing that right now. It's it'll be interesting to see as time goes on what does that lead to. Amazon for the longest time did nothing with their ad units, and now I think it is maybe their number one or number two revenue profitable revenue stream in their business. So you know it's only a matter of time until these things sort of shift toward it. I would say that's probably what the what the rise is. And and coming back to it, if you're playing in the D2C space and you have a Shopify or, or other platform store, you know, you you have to be more of a real marketer to, to, for lack of a better term. You have to really understand all the tools that exist in your arsenal and you have to have a much more comprehensive strategy, you know, everything that relates to not just the media buying component, but the SEO component, the affiliate component, the influencer component. You have to have email marketing funnels dialed in. You have to build the cross promote. Like you have to be really, really dialed in to make it make sense because the CAC, the cost per acquisition is typically going to be far higher, but the LTV, the lifetime total value, if done correctly, will far outweigh what you need to do in in a lot of these stores. So that's sort of the, I'd say, the simplest way to look at the challenge or decisions that you make is what can I afford for my acquisition to be and what do I anticipate my lifetime total value to look like? And if I can justify the cost of acquisition for a really outsized LTV, then all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're talking and DTC makes a lot of sense. Sure. The, the trade-off, I think, always existed in terms of, you know, you either pay Amazon a big percentage because they facilitate everything, but unfortunately you don't own that customer uh, or you have to pay to get that traffic to your Shopify site or your website. You're paying Google, you're paying Meta, but then you have an opportunity to build a relationship with that customer and increase your lifetime value. Uh, so there is a, a trade-off there. I think you touched on earlier the uh, omni-channel approach. And I just saw yesterday the D2C brand Mudwater opened a a physical location in Santa Monica. I don't know if it's a revenue generator or a marketing line item, uh, but it, it looked cool. Going back to kind of the one of the first D2C um, darlings, Warby Parker, also kind of famously went into physical retail. Is that a necessary component now of a scaling success, a successful scaling D2C strategy is to go omnichannel, go physical retail and do that layering on top or not necessary? So someone like Warby Parker, who have absolutely, I mean, I don't know where they sit today, but, you know, historically smashed it out of the park and had physical locations everywhere and all across the US. And really, really, there's actually a, a knockoff in Australia called Bailey Nelson, who just took the model and imported it into Australia, funnily enough. But look, I think that that's a bigger gamble. And for something like Warby Parker, uh, you know, it's glasses, right? So you need to do the eye test and there's components that actually require some sort of physical interaction. I don't believe that you necessarily need to build your own storefront. You know, there could definitely be the arguments for it. But, you know, to your point, it could be a marketing line item and something that's really, really intelligent for you, depending on your product and, and how you fit and where you sit in the value chain. And, you know, are you a high-end product? Are you, you know, where does that look like? But also just getting into, you know, the Costco's and Walmart's and, you know, targets of the world, if your brand fits that, you know, that has a flow on effect too. 
and something that can be really, really valuable. Again, it's a different strategy and it's a totally different reality in the relationship. You know, it's a very old world how that works. And it's about who you know and the purchasing manager and building the relationships. And, you know, and there's a lot of different ways to approach it. But I would say if you want to build enterprise value, if you are looking to really secure some capital, uh, having a channel and a relationship like that and having a history like that is going to add a tremendous amount of value. And just to give uh, the listeners sort of a, a look at it, if we as Southcore were looking to invest in a brand and we had a couple of brands and they were all in the same niche, let's say in the pet space or in the baby space, and one of these brands had a really strong relationship with multiple retailers, then being able to then invert that process and take what is D2C into retail becomes a really, really strong value proposition. So also just looking at it as well, if you're looking to sell your brand and you have those relationships and you've got the omni-channel approach, then all of a sudden the prospective buyer pool likely increases and it will have an implication on, on the brand. Taking one step back and saying it is hard, it takes a lot of money also and you know from some of the horror stories i've heard is don't go too aggressive and try and get every one of your SKUs on shelf because it's a very different life cycle it's not e-commerce where you make a change you do a b testing on a page you buy a different type of ad and you see the results you know these are much longer cycles it can take you 6 12 18 months just to get in stores and then until you get the retail numbers back and the performance numbers and you've stayed on shelf and you go into the you know not just a local distribution but national and there's just there's more components that that exist inside of it Absolutely. Longer uh, sales cycle, longer kind of sell-through cycle in terms of when you get paid, they require large inventory uh, commitments, which ties up capital. Of course, it opens up potentially another source of capital, which is uh, PO funding, but adds a layer of complexity as you grow. Let's uh, shift towards, we talked a little bit about kind of AI opening up international talent for, in this case, you know, Chinese brands or manufacturers being able to list directly on Amazon using some of the great language and translation tools that are available now with AI. Actually, just recently was interviewing somebody for a role here in the US, but not a native English speaker. And previously, just by the nature of the role, wouldn't have been a consideration. Um, but you know, having frank conversation with her, asking like, how do you overcome that with the tools that AI makes available, it wouldn't have been a problem for her to execute that role. So definitely opens things up. To take that concept to offshoring, which is one of your businesses, The I'm a big fan of, of delegation, outsourcing, uh, offshoring, if possible to, to tap into high quality, low cost talent where available. Do you see AI replacing what offshore resources typically do today? Do you see it leveling them up so everybody kind of, you know, all boats are lifted? Uh, how do you see that affecting the offshore and nearshore model? Yeah, great question. And something that actually came up recently, I had a, a conversation probably a couple of weeks ago on this exact topic. And what I believe will be the case is that, you know, we're seeing AI really um, reduce required outputs and delivery and, and having a tremendously positive implication on on the world in terms of just you know value creation and how quickly we can spin things up and and produce my personal belief in order to truly free yourself you know you use the term de delegation and, and handing over accountability in order to truly free yourself there are only so many hours in the day and if you are sat there trying to think through it, every aspect of the marketing mix let's talk about that in, in in this context here i think that it doesn't matter how many automations and ai tools that you have if you are 
trying to be a jack of all trades and a master of none, that's exactly who you'll be. So from my personal experience, I think it's going to empower the use of a lot more offshore talent. I think it's going to help maybe not level the playing field, but just make offshore talent more efficient than they are today and bring it up a level uh, from where it was. But I definitely don't see it being one of those situations where it's, well, we don't need offshore talent anymore because we've got AI just from the standpoint that, you know, I can't remember what the stats are, but there's like, there's an absurd amount of under service right now. There's an undersupply and a massive demand for talent right now. And that number continues to grow year on year for what's happening. So I think it's going to really help bridge that gap. And, you know, you might have a reality where you see what was a, you know, and using the SEO example that I gave earlier, um, you know, I've got three content writers uh, that are working across multiple planes here from our website to, you know, blog content to, to a whole lot of other things that we're working on. But it's made them wildly more efficient because they can build the framework of let's take the blog post, for example, they do the keyword research, they produce the blog post, they'll wrap AI into it, and then they'll run it through and actually review and make, you know, human changes to it. So it doesn't actually say they no longer need to be involved and you know we all know google and every other platform will punish you if it's just you know nonsense content that people are trying to spin out so i think it's going to make people a lot more efficient you know the same would go for video editors and being able to splice more content together but they still need to give the creative direction they still need to work through those aspects so so that that would be my personal belief but uh I think we're just at the start of this whole AI uh, explosion. So, you know, I got to say, I definitely am eating a bit of humble pie. You know, one of the things that I said to myself is like being in the creative space, they're never going to be able to figure out how to do like design or, and it's like, holy shit, if you have a play around with like mid journey and things like that, you're like, okay, maybe it's going to be taken a lot further than, I mean, at least I would have ever imagined. Yeah, the predictions 10 years ago was that the truck drivers would be out of work, but um, the first to go were the, the writers, designers, uh, even analysts, and I think probably a plumber is, is the safest uh, job right now. Um, your experience um, maps closely, I think, or, or what you're describing maps closely to my experience in terms of AI today is pretty much at the level of what a virtual assistant would have been in terms of like basic tasks around scheduling and things like that. Obviously, you have to get pretty creative when it comes to creating user agents. But from a intelligence perspective or a logic perspective, it's there. But now all of the offshore people that I work with are significantly leveled up because they have access to all these tools. And I encourage use of these tools so that they can do a lot more. You know, you, you gave the example of long-form content. Previously, I'd pay you know, let's say three to four hundred dollars for decently researched fifteen hundred word article. Let's say um, not super technical, but you know, high quality, not you know, just garbage being churned out. Now, my process: I have an SEO expert or do a detailed content brief, run it through AI. We get pretty good output, and then I have an editor go through that, fact check it, um, clean it up, make it you know really nice, and that costs less than a hundred dollars, right? That whole process. So. I'm not spitting out, you know, AI in mass and just garbage content that's going to get penalized, but I did, you know, cut my cost by 75%. So there's a lot of opportunities there to, to level everybody up. What tips do you have for founders or leaders that want to get better at delegating to distributed teams, building distributed teams, um, whether it's offshore or any type of um, kind of uh, remote team setup? How do you increase team cohesion and increase output? Yeah, yeah, great question. I, I would say though, you know, you more eloquently put 
the example around how for SEO for you as well, it's it's totally shifted. You can just produce high quality at, at far less of a cost and therefore it's going to have just a tremendous value add to you and your business and whoever you're supporting so yeah very cool to see that uh, you know i didn't assume that i was the only one that was figuring this out but it's cool to see that other people are also you know getting getting their hooks in and finding ways to really have an impact and that's just one example i mean you've got a podcast as well and there's so many tools out there for podcasters to create show notes or create clips and they're not perfect yet i still need somebody to review them but it's now it's you know taking a task that previously was 10 hours down to one hour it's it's unlocking a lot of value absolutely it's uh yeah it's a it's a it's a game changer when you can harness it and that's the name of the game i think for for most people now is how do i implement it into my business and how do i start to yield that outsized return so that i can uh, start to get there and to sort of spin off into your question about how do you get better at delegating and, and finding your way through it i think first things first is that for for a lot of founders particularly early stage founders and i'm guilty of this myself when when we were starting off is that you know you, you you're like a, a bull in a china shop you're just running with your head down smashing through absolutely any task that you can just to get the business off the ground and and to drive and and as you start to mature both in yourself and as a business what starts to happen and and I would say the natural flow is that you start to identify the areas that you both like and you're typically best at they they seem to have a pretty uh, positive correlation to one another and so the thing that starts to become really pertinent is that you start to really build out not just the org chart that that people really sort of in, invest in and talk about where do you sit and what your title is and honestly, all of that nonsense, I think people really need to actually focus firstly on, before we even step into that, they need to focus on what is their goal? What is their objective? So breaking down really simply, like as a business, what do we hope to achieve? And keeping some really simple metrics that exist, you know, there's a couple of examples, like the North Star metric is is something that listeners should look up and then that sits under it is the one metric that matters. And so based on your North Star metric of maybe two things, like to yield profitability and to grow revenue by X percent, let's say that, that might be your your North Star metric, every single function in the business will have one metric that matters. So let's say you're an e-commerce business, number of profitable products launched per year, you know, that might be one of the product launch and development functions, OMTMs, one metric that matters. So really getting clear on that. And then as you get to that point, what you would then look to do is then you start to build in, right, so who's actually accountable for this? So starting to build out your accountability chart. And we actually have a free uh, template on our website. Anyone can download it and we teach you how to sort of build it yourself. But having three to five uh, uh, accountabilities of what success looks like in your specific role and then plugging people into those accountabilities. You know, you're not, you don't want to hire, generally speaking, for things that you're effectively uh, are missing. It's what am I trying to achieve, right? What, what, what is my goals and what are the things that are getting me closer to my goals? So when you start to build in those accountabilities, all of a sudden it shifts. And with an accountability chart specifically, you know, if you're a small business and it's you and two other people in the business, you might have 50 accountabilities. You know, you'd have your name in multiple boxes in those three to five boxes. And then as you sort of uh, strategize and you look at it and you say, right, well, I don't really possess all of these skill sets maybe it's time to now look at my org chart and hire that person that can now fill in those boxes and remove me from it. So there's a few different ways that you can approach that. But but ultimately, again, really long-winded answer for you here is that you need to get clear on what the business is trying to achieve and what the short-term goals are. You then need to make sure that 
there's accountabilities that are aligned with those short-term goals. And then when it looks to, to actually delegating them, you, you need to have KPIs and performance metrics that align with those goals and objectives that can be measured. And you know the, the mistake that that all of us make, again, I'll put my hand up and say, I don't always do the very best job at it. And you know, now I'm, I'm in a different reality. I'm running a company of nearly 100 uh, employees or, or team members, as I'd prefer to call them. And, and ultimately, you, know, you have to have some pretty material structures when you get to that point. But, but, but coming back to it, you have to review the team member. And it's not just about, are they hitting the goals? It's put yourself in the shoes of your team member. Everyone wants career progression. Everyone wants to hit that next level and see what their path looks like. And so it's it's getting that two-way feedback going that that really starts to galvanize your ability to actually achieve those high-level goals. Sure. I've heard you say previously a really fantastic line that stuck with me, delegate accountability, not tasks. A really concise way of reminding yourself that the how they do it is less important and le- and and certainly doesn't empower them to get creative and grow and stretch themselves give them the goal and let them figure out how to do it and obviously you want to check along the way and you know oftentimes there's that what is it that first I'll do it and you watch second time we'll do it together and third time you do it I'll watch and then kind of you're on your own so there's a lot of ways to to get people up to speed but um having clear accountability with metrics that aren't murky, that aren't subjective, uh, helps a lot. You're based in Israel. A lot of your team is in the Philippines. Do you have um, team members in other countries as well, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, I just want to go back to that point because it is a really good point. And for founders who, I think it's a, a really natural progression that you you delegate tasks to a VA and that's sort of the starting point. But you'll always be the person who is effectively the owner of that task list and if you're not delegating that accountability then the eye is always going to fall back on you to say yes boss what do i do whereas to your point if you really want to empower someone you say this is the objective that we need to create and this is what you are accountable for in achieving that objective and you know like i think building sops and giving clear guidance and all those things are really really critical uh, in doing it but you do need to give them that empowerment and that freedom to, to achieve. To answer your question now, um, I am in Israel. Uh, we have a small footprint here. We have mostly team members in the Philippines, and we also have uh, in, in Australia as well. Got it. And that's where you're originally from, right? Correct. Very cool. So any tips for uh, managing a global team, whether it relates to just kind of practical culture? Do you do events where everybody gets together, communication? time zones, any tips for founders that are going through similar? So I would say it breaks into a few different uh, components. One, so you've got sort of the company culture and what are you, who are you as a company and how are you trying to exist? And then you've got sort of the goals and objectives and how do you drive toward them? And so, you know, I'll give you a really tangible example of, of the latter right now. You know, I am living in Israel and when the atrocities that happened on October 7 happened, I stepped away from the business from for close to, probably close to about a month and a half. You know, my focus was just on my existence here and supporting, you know, the, the survivors, supporting the military, supporting in any way that we can and, and obviously uh, dealing with those challenges. But fortunately for me, from a business perspective, we'd built our Q four goals and objectives and everyone had uh, we run on a, a methodology called eos the entrepreneurial operating system and so 
it didn't really like everyone knew what they had to do for the next three months and whether I was there or I wasn't the business actually grew in that time which was pretty uh, you know it was a pretty amazing reflection that you know you always think I have to be there to be pushing and driving and you know you've got a super capable team that really in that event really stepped up so I would say setting those goals setting those objectives having you know we go through it and we see if we're on track or off track every single week in our leadership meeting with with our senior leadership and so that's the winning structure is to look at the big objective break it down into bite-sized chunks and then you know three months 90 days is is a pretty healthy amount of time to achieve some big moving uh, initiatives and so i would say that's that's the one component i'll stop there i don't know if you have any uh that feeling must have been first humbling and then empowering when you realize that hey I'm not needed, but maybe maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I can now kind of work on the business instead of in the business. Yeah, it was definitely very gratifying for sure. And it was incredible. But, you know, like I'm like any other founder at the end of the day, right? And it's like, I can be doing more. Like I want to achieve, you know, you're so motivated to succeed because there isn't a safety net at the back of all of this. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely had that moment of, wow, that was amazing. And then quickly, I'm like, okay, I've lost. Oh, yeah, I've, lo I've lost a month and a half now of like actual strategic objectives and initiatives and like, you know, continuing to really drive the, the machine forward. But, but for sure, you know, I would say from my business life cycle, uh, we started Multiply Me. The embryonic idea of it started in September of 2019 and we launched in, in sort of January, February of 2020. So I'm sort of four years into this journey here and we're now going into like the first proper meaningful strategy planning in January with my, my two business partners in, in Southeast Asia. We're going to meet, we're going to go see the team in, in the Philippines. And then we're going to spend some time sitting together and really working through it. But we can start to project out more, you know, more than the next 12 to 18 months now for the first time, really. And, you know, I think that it's great to have the five year and 10 year vision and objectives and, and all of that. But when you're at these early stages, uh, you, you really got to focus on what's right in front of your face and slowly but surely start to build out that sort of longer term vision around it. The other thing that you had in terms of your question is, is culture. And I think that's a really important one to address. For us, you know, our team's predominantly Filipino. So I think it has made it easier because, you know, obviously, I mean, I've been working with the Philippines now for probably over 10 years and have a really uh, good sense of the culture. I also love the culture. And I think that that helps as well. I sit here in Israel and I don't know how conducive the Filipino and Israeli culture is in terms of just the cultural differences in working in a remote set environment. You know, one is very blunt and direct and let's get it done here in Israel. And Filipinos are a lot more soft-spoken, need a little bit of uh, nurturing and, and, and I would say a much more adept to an Australian culture that's really willing to, to sort of invest and, you know, and, and go through it. So um, I think that's helped us, uh, but I, I don't see it as something that is prohibitive. One of the things that we do is that we have, for example, get-togethers in person for our team. So we did a massive Christmas party uh, where we you know, had all of our team members join in three different satellite locations of where our biggest hubs are. Uh, we have you know, uh, monthly cultural events. We have a culture club that really facilitates a lot of it through our people and culture function. And, you know, we operate just like any, you know, in-person entity would where there's all of these events going on year round. There's ways in which we interact and get to meet other people inside of the business. And I think it's really, really important that you sort of set that out. And now that we're getting into a sort of a better stage in our business's history, you know, the goal is to go there a couple of times a year, fly the entire team into a location, throw, you know, a bit of a, 
a party, a bit of a get together. And that's, you know, that's finally coming to a point where we can do that, which is very exciting. Fantastic advice. Would love to keep drilling there, but we'll have to get you back for more questions because we're running out of time here. So let me just close out with a quick lightning round as we do. Uh, I'll ask you a couple of questions. Tell me the first thing comes to mind. What's a book, newsletter, and or podcast that you find yourself recommending most often? The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Great book. What SaaS tool do you love or did you recently discover that uh, blew you away? Oof. Recently, I would say... Oh, there's just so many good tools. All these note-taker apps I'm finding quite useful, honestly. I'm currently using fireflies.ai, but TimeOS, which is an Israeli company, I just saw the output of a meeting that I was on with someone else. And it was unbelievable in terms of like all the conversation notes and the action items. Like It was very succinct. So I would say that's been pretty, uh, that's been pretty meaningful for me. Also, just from working with my team and when we put together a proposal or I get on a call and on the back of a consulting discovery call, they can just run with it. So yeah, that's been helpful. Yeah, a uh, big fan of those. We've had two actually on this podcast, um, TLDV and Assembly, both excellent tools. What's a core value or principle that you live by or try to live by? From a business perspective, I think probably the words that come out of my mouth more, more often than any and really subconsciously, it's, it's value creation. So I, I think for anyone building a business, and I think just generally in life, if your focus is to create value and to you know leave people better off than when they first started working with you or meeting you, I, I think that it's a paradigm shift in what the upside opportunity is. I think both from you as a individual and from you know from a you know for me, uh, it's it's all about the gift of giving without the expectation of reciprocation. And if you can sort of embody that mantra i think a lot of things shift for you so that would be that would be a personal core value of mine absolutely you've created a lot of value for me today and i'm sure for our audience as well so thank you for that um to close us out how can people reach you if they want to work with you if they want to continue the conversation and any final words that you want to share with the audience I'm very uh, relatively active on LinkedIn. So Yanni Kosminski, you can find me or Yanni, Y-O-N-I, at any one of my companies, Multiply Me, We Are Escala, Southcoal.co, uh, any one of those three. So you'll, you'll get me. Um, any final words? Look, I would say, obviously, everyone who's listening in here is trying to find their product market fit. And a really impressive founder gave me uh, some really good advice probably somewhere between 12 and 18 months into my journey. Uh, he's had some really successful tech ventures. And when I came to him, you know, we built Multiply Me. It was a year and a half old. Uh, Escala was six months old, our consulting process. And I said to him, like, look, like we can understand and fix and build any business with our consulting practice, but then we could staff it with high value, low cost talent. Like I can do anything for everyone. And he said to me, like, look, get to $5 million in revenue focus on a specific niche and then come back to me and then let's talk. And, and I think for anyone who's trying to find their product market fit and really trying to drive towards someone, you're never going to be everything to everyone. So be very intentional about the space that you know, and you can always expand and you can always hit other verticals thereafter, but get, get those early wins on the board. And then, you know, once you have cash, it's a very different reality. And that's now where I'm sitting is that we're hopefully, finally, getting to a point where we have some cash and now we can start to take bigger gambles on new verticals. And so I think it's really good advice and something that sticks with me. And I hope that anyone listening uh, takes that advice and I get a call in a few years saying, hey, <laughs> that was very helpful. 
Very valuable advice. Totally agree there. Thank you again, Yoni, and wishing you tons of success. We'll stay in touch. To you too, mate. Thank you. That's a wrap. Let me know your feedback with a quick email to hello at pmfpod.com or DM me on LinkedIn or X. I always love to hear from you. Make sure to tune in next week when Laurel Taylor, founder and CEO of Candidly, discusses her company's growth journey and how they provided $1.2 billion in student loan savings last year. That's billion with a B. If you enjoyed the episode or took away any learnings, I'd greatly appreciate a positive review in Apple Podcasts or just share this episode with a friend. As always, wishing you rocket success on your startup journey.